This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This episode of Real Estate Is Your Business is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. Hi, uh, Jonathan Wasserstrom, co-founder and CEO of Square Foot. What I love about the industry is the, no pun intended, real nature of it, that you can walk down a street and say this building exists because of X, Y, and Z, and these tenants used to be there, these tenants are there now, it was built here, what used to be there before uh, was this, and there's a, a life and a story to kind of every building, and it's fascinating. Here's a common theme you hear on this show, and let's get it out of the way. The real estate industry is antiquated. For most people, they think of residential real estate first, and that's lagging enough. But technology and innovation in the commercial real estate space? The bad news is that's 20 years behind residential. Coming up, you'll hear from an exception to this, a commercial real estate platform that enables companies to find office space using innovative technology and smart tools without going space to space. From New York City, you're listening to Real Estate Is Your Business, powered by Preview, a smart online real estate brokerage providing expert advice without the high fees. With Thomas Kutzman and Scott Pollock. Uh, Jonathan, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And when most people think about real estate, they think about purely residential, and your company's focused on commercial real estate. How would you classify the state of affairs in commercial real estate uh, today? Two decades behind the residential, <laughs> um, at least from where kind of where we sit on the uh, leasing piece on the transaction side of, of leasing. Uh, when somebody wants to look for a house or an apartment, names that come to mind would be Zillow, Redfin, Compass, Street Easy, if you're here in New York, those names don't exist uh, really on the commercial side, at least historically, we're, we're fixing that. Um, and all those names exist on the residential side because people want to actually look at a house before they buy it, look at an apartment before they rent it. Uh, and that desire for transparency and uh, the desire to want to get educated on something before uh, a process begins, which is pervasive in virtually every other industry, uh, has already pervaded uh, residential, and hopefully we're we're doing our part on the commercial side. Now, as far as the size of the commercial market, how would you describe it relative to the size of the residential market? Uh, big but smaller. Um, I think the numbers that we'll use on the transaction layer, which is all we care about selfishly, I think there's like $60 billion worth of transaction commissions paid in transactions on the residential side every year, uh, about $30 billion uh, on the commercial side. So still massive, but less massive. Now, the the lack of adoption of technology and the lack of advancement, do you think that's because it's it was concentrated among a, a few big landlords? I think it's, um, it's demand-driven, right? And uh, consumer demand-driven. And in on the residential side, it's uh, a house is being bought or sold. Um, nine times out of 10, it's a consumer on both sides of the transaction. And consumers tend to be early adopters than businesses. And that's across the board in, in every industry. Uh, in commercial, you have a business that's interacting with another business, right? You have the tenant who's a CEO of a company and you have a landlord. Uh, the CEO of the company actually looks and feels and performs a lot like a traditional consumer does, right? Because when that CEO is not looking for office space, 
not running his business, he is a consumer in every other facet of his life. Uh, that is a little different on the landlord side. Um, and so we've seen, and the reason why we have a nice little business here is we've been able to uh, start at the root of the problem, which is a client, a tenant is looking for space and the change is coming from the demand side, not the supply side. Because uh, if you're a landlord, I have a building and people find me somehow traditionally through the brokerage industry uh, and my billing is leased, right? And especially you talk about the last 10 years when we've been in a bull market, both in New York and internationally and nationally, uh, landlords haven't had a hard time filling space. Um, so they don't really have a pain point. Pain point exists on the tenant side when they wake up one morning and say, okay, I'm looking for space. How the hell do I get access to that inventory? So what Squarefoot does is enables those tenants, those those companies looking for space to find space more easily, right? What what was was the problem that you saw that that companies as tenants were having previously that weren't solved by traditional commercial brokers that mm-hmm. you guys are trying to solve? Yeah, and 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 to be clear, and we'll talk more about this, I'm sure. You know, we have brokers. We are brokers. We participate in the transaction. Uh, what Squarefoot brings to the process that historically hasn't occurred. Uh, and definitely has not been prevalent, is transparency, and then secondly, technology. So right, it's that transparency that we uh, do by uh, having created this listings platform. So tomorrow you wake up and you need to find space for your company, you can go online and do that, right? The same way when you look to buy a plane ticket from here to Chicago, you can do that. And uh, when you said that the commercial space was 20 years behind residential, does that previously not exist? The idea of here's a list of, of, of yeah, spaces luck, that I can lease? Good luck finding it if you're not on our website, squarefoot.com. Because <laughs> continue yeah. though, so so transparency, even as, as simple as saying these are the buildings where there's some space available, that previously didn't exist. Good luck, especially not on the leasing side. So LoopNet's been around for a while. LoopNet's really good if you want to uh, buy a building, especially a small building. Nothing that we could look out the window here and see will be on LoopNet. Uh, we want to buy a small building in Poughkeepsie or a secondary or tertiary market. LoopNet's great for that. Uh, LoopNet is, however, not good for leasing and not good in major markets. No, as, as far as the leasing, the, the tenants, when you, you talk about the demand side, the tenants that are coming to your platform, what size employee count are we talking about? It's all over the board. I mean, we've closed as big as 35,000 square feet, which would be a company of a couple hundred at that location. That particular deal uh, was actually in Dallas, and it was a U.S. headquarters of an international business based in Europe, so I don't know, tens of thousands of employees. Biggest deal we haven't closed uh, was 70,000 square feet. Uh, our bread and butter winds up being two to 10,000 square feet, so we'll call it companies of 10 to 100. Uh, it has nothing to do with our ability to close a transaction. It actually is all on the marketing side. So uh, two things. One is the average company is in that two to 10,000 square foot range, right? The average business is not a Fortune 2000 company. Not to sound like an idiot, there's only 2,000 Fortune 2000 businesses, right? Um, and then all of those are pretty well covered, not from also from a transaction management perspective, but if you're a CEO of that business, you're getting pitched all day by brokers from the other world, from traditional world. And for that sweet spot of 20 plus, how, how do you see the industry changing with you know, co-working spaces, trying to get into the enterprise game? Um, yeah, we. Th- I mean, for us, we are uh, very Switzerland, right? Somebody comes to us because they're looking for office space. 
They don't say, oh, I definitely want co-working. Sometimes they do. Or I definitely want to be in a Blackstone building. Sometimes they do, although even less frequently. They come because I'm the CEO of a business. I'm the office manager for this business. And we have a real estate problem that needs solving. And we as Square Foot do a couple of things to help with that, right? So first is we bring transparency to the process. You can actually see the inventory, right? You can see that around the corner on 25th Street, there's a WeWork. I'm making up the address. There's a WeWork on 25th Street. On 24th Street, there's a... There probably is a WeWork on there any, probably any street that you talk about. Uh, yeah, there's definitely one on 18th Street. There's definitely yeah, a bunch around here, right? Uh, there's also a yard. And there's also a no-tell. And there's also an industrious. And you as an average tenant don't know those five names and don't know the differences between those. You also don't know that in between the yard and the WeWork on those other two blocks, there's 10 regular buildings that have spaces that could very well um, suit all your needs. So uh, our job as Square Foot is to uh, you know, help tenants find the right home and on the other side, help landlords market themselves to those tenants. So is there any difference in the incentives that you have as a broker between different forms of space that a tenant could take that drives a kind of part of the equation of, of where you might be steering a particular kind of a client towards? We are, um, let's see. We have no conflicts of interest. So uh, everybody that we just mentioned, they all pay us commissions. Some might pay us more, some might pay us less. I really don't know. Uh, at the individual broker level, I think one of the actual really interesting things that we've done uh, is our brokers get paid not based on how much commission dollars they bring in on a given transaction. So they're the ones who are actually working these transactions. And if building A or, or landlord B pays more or less, doesn't make a was going to curse. It doesn't make a bit of difference to them, to the broker, right? So we believe, and we've seen time and time again, it actually much better aligns the incentive structure uh, between our brokers and our and our clients on the tenant side. Is that unique in the industry? Or is that yeah, always yeah. the case? Yeah. What's unique about it? Um, well, all of it. So um, if I'm a broker at JLL where I used to work, uh, I eat what I kill. Well, actually, that's a whole separate thing that's also unique for us. We'll come back to that if you want. Uh, but I make commission dollars, and I take home some portion of that after splitting with the house. Uh, when I work at Square Foot, I get paid based on the transaction I close, irrespective of the size of that deal. So, and, it's, a, so it's a flat flat fee per transaction? To the broker. To yes. the broker. The comp model for the brokers look different. And so is that, that's something you probably hang your hat on is the idea that when you're a client, it's not necessarily something where you're being steered towards as a uh, maybe a traditional model or steered towards the place that gives me the best commission. You're being steered towards what might be actually best for you. Yep. And I mean, it's, it draws a lot of parallels to residential where the, the, there are newer models that are trying to move away from that you know, pure eat what you kill uh, approach. How do the brokers in your company feel about that? And why would they come to a company like yours? And this is a broad question about companies that are trying to change the way real estate transactions are done, residential, commercial alike. Um, you know, there's a question of eat what you kill has been the way it's been done for a long time. There's obviously value in having stability of a salary or a non-commission-based model or, or some alternative model. But, you know, there's probably some downsides, right? So what is the what is the feeling of the brokers that are working for Square Foot, especially ones like yourself that came from a more traditional entity like a JLL? Yeah, hopefully they're happy, right? Um, otherwise, we have other problems. Yeah, I think it's interesting. So our brokers close, depending on how efficient they are, um, I don't know, three to five, six times the number of deals they would close at a traditional firm. So they might make more on any 
specific, sorry, they might make less on a specific transaction, but they're doing many more transactions, right? So the, the day a broker walks in and starts working for a square foot, they're twice as efficient as the traditional industry. Well, how so? Because they don't have to prospect, right? So, uh, and I guess in full, when I was at JLL, I was on the capital market side, I never had to prospect. I think I'd have actually been very unsuccessful if I ever had to be in an eat what you kill brokerage environment. Um, but I'm pretty good at actually closing a transaction. So when we started Square Foot and I was working all these inbound leads, it was a pretty good broker and had a lot of uh, happy and successful and repeat business off of it. Um, but yeah, on day one, leads drop on your desk, right? Which is not what happens at fill in the blank big shop. Fill in the blank big shop, bunch of kids just out of college, desk, phone, go effing figure it out. Um, or your desk and phone won't be here in six months. And what you wind up happening is at the big shops, which are like the good ones for this, and I'm sure the numbers are worse elsewhere, uh, but fill in the blank, big company, there's like three or four of them, JL, Cushman, CB, Newmark, et cetera. 80% of the brokers who start are not there after three years. We have a slightly better rate than that. Where do they go? After a few years, they leave the industry, they just hop yeah, around? Yeah, they shake out. I mean, if you're at Cush, fill in the blank, right? They're all the same. Um, the businesses are very successful. The average broker is not, though, right? So in order to be successful at JLL or Cushman or CB, you have to be very good at finding and winning business. Because um, doing the transaction is not rocket science. It's finding and winning the business that's hard. And for where the platform started to where it is today, what are what are some of those features that made the agents more efficient or made those brokers more efficient? So there's two things. One, um, the first big chunk of efficiency just comes from them not having to prospect. So the fact that every day there's tens of thousands of people who Google Chelsea office space, New York City office space, Milwaukee office space, uh, and wind up on our site. Them, that's the client tenant raising their hand saying, hey, guys, looking for space. That's completely flipped on the head from the traditional model where, again, you have this bank of cold callers, essentially, uh, trying to figure out who's looking for space. So first half uh, or the first kind of 2x in efficiency is just based on that. Uh, we get further, further efficiency through the tech and products that we build uh, for our clients and for our, for our brokers, right? So that's things around space discovery, that's, you know, it sounds like a 2008 Verizon commercial, but there's an app for that. If you're a client of the square foot and you're walking around town, there's an app in your hand that's doing all the things that you'd expect to do that doesn't exist outside of square foot. Um, what kind of things like is that? Taking pictures, mm -hmm. right? So your phone can take pictures, obviously, but then uh, you go on a tour and Thomas can't join you that day. And how do you share all that? Yeah. And it's not just pictures, it's pictures, it's notes, it's videos, it's ratings and reviews on those spaces. Um, it might be easy enough when the two of y'all are sitting on a couch next to each other, but let's say he's based in San Francisco or Singapore. How do you share all that? So the messaging is between, because obviously companies have more participants like in the process to make that selection. So you can talk, you know, tenant to tenant as well as tenant to broker on the platform. Yeah. That's, that's pretty interesting. Now, as far as where you see the platform going, what are the, the tools you want to build um, that will take it to that the next level from where it is now? Uh, I mean, there's a whole bunch of little things. Um, I think one of the next big evolutions of the business that we're really excited about rolling out this year is uh, agency business representing landlords. Uh, to date, we've only worked on the tenant side. 
not for any good or bad reason. It just it's made a lot of sense. Um, but now we'll start a tenant, uh, sorry, a landlord rep business as well. And it's always been on the roadmap to do both. Um, we start on the tenant side because if you think about it logically, again, getting back to you know why we have a business is because a bunch of people looking for space or online looking for space and the change is coming from the demand side, right? Um, so that's where we started. Didn't make sense to start on the on the supply side. And actually, when we first started talking about the business a handful of years ago, um, we went to a bunch of landlords that said, hey, you should go put your stuff online. I said, well, why the hell would I want to do that? Yeah. Nobody's online looking. We said, okay, we respectfully disagree. And we said, well, there are a bunch of people, well, they said, okay, a bunch of people online looking. And they said, yeah, but it's just going to be a bunch of like tech dorks like you. I said, okay, respectfully disagree but whatever um and you fast forward now we've closed i don't know 500 transactions a bunch of tech kids that look like me i'm not a tech guy i'm a real estate guy um but a whole bunch of industrial businesses a whole bunch of designers a whole bunch of um what do we do garment district um fashion tenants law firms hedge funds everybody's online looking um because it's what they're accustomed to on the the residential side what they're accustomed to everywhere yeah everywhere this my I mean, my dad, who is not a tech person, a 72-year-old retired physician, Google, like he wants this table, he's going to Google table. He's clearly not somebody who grew up with an iPhone. If he needed office space, his first instinct is to Google it. And it's clear that I'm 35. I didn't grow up with an iPhone either. It's clear that the 25-year-old is clearly online looking for this. And also the 75-year-old. Now, for people that are not familiar, I mean, you talked about how you compensate your brokers, but you know, what context can you provide as far as how the commission structure is in the commercial market compared to residential? Uh, it's pretty similar, actually. Um, yeah, almost identical. The interesting thing, I guess, not interesting, I don't know. It's about 6%, plus or minus. It's close enough. Um, good enough for government work from an estimation perspective. One of the interesting things on the commercial side is the uh, person representing the tenant gets two-thirds of that. person representing the landlord gets one-third of that. Whereas on the residential side, as I'm sure you all are familiar, it's 50-50. And the reason why that's the case on the in the commercial side is because the person representing the tenant, as I mentioned, historically spends half of their time prospecting. Landlord's not prospecting. Landlord puts up – this actually doesn't happen, especially not in New York, but uh, we have space available, come inquire within. And then it, the way they do that is disjointed and messed up, blah, blah, blah. But it's actually the tenant rep's job to go and find the people looking for space. So they have to work twice as many hours for the same transaction. So they get paid twice as much on any given transaction, but they do half as many transactions. So it seems odd that the, the landlords didn't put themselves out there in a more efficient way in the past, right? Like you were saying, like, no one's looking for us. But clearly there was an audience of, of, of brokers at a minimum looking for that space on behalf of clients. So, so brokers have a conduit with which to find space. It's that the average tenant does not, right? And the average landlord doesn't make – the average landlord owns two buildings. Like from an actual statistical perspective, right, that's right. probably about right. Maybe it's three. Um, but most landlords own one building. There's a bunch that own two, three, four. And then you have groups like Blackstone and Brookfield who own dozens of buildings. So the average maybe is four. I don't know. If you take the total number of buildings divided by the total number of landlords, it's probably like four. So if I own four buildings, it doesn't really make sense for me to advertise online, um, especially if I have one building in Chelsea, one building in Fidei, and one building in Midtown, and one building in New Jersey. Yeah. 
what do I advertise online? Nobody knows me as a landlord, right? So I can't say JW Industries has space available because nobody's Googling JW Industries. Uh, I can't do it by uh, location because I have one building in Chelsea. So I'm going to put up an ad for Chelsea office space and hopefully they can wind up in my building, but most likely they're going to wind up in one of the other 87 buildings in Chelsea. Um, so it's this like the inverse of the tragedy of the commons yeah. problem. Well, what was the traditional model for those landlords to get their buildings leased up? There's this thing called CoStar, right? Um, big, massive, publicly traded business. Uh, it's essentially like Bloomberg for commercial real estate. And what I mean by that is if you pay a subscription to Bloomberg, you have access to Bloomberg, you pay a subscription to CoStar, having access to CoStar, all the big broker, every broker, everybody uses CoStar in the industry. You as a tenant don't know what CoStar is. You don't have access to CoStar. You're not going to sign up for a CoStar account uh, just to do this one transaction. Uh, the same way the average person trading stocks does not sign up for a Bloomberg account. So do you see yourself? But if you're Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or anybody else, you'd be an idiot to not have a shit ton of these. Well, so so with your expansion into repping the the landlords themselves, does that compete up against a co-star? Or no. Does... If there's one thing that everybody hears, we don't have any interest in competing against co-star. Co-star um, is for the industry, by the industry. We're just another channel for uh, tenants to find space. Sorry, a channel for tenants to actually get access to space. Um, and a uh, a conduit for landlords to market that space. Um, CoStar is really good at a whole bunch of other things that are uh, kind of second, third, and fourth degree levels of data that if I'm a capital markets participant or if I'm trying to do a whole bunch of other things in real estate that I want that data for, uh, we have no interest in, in all of that. Before we continue with our discussion, uh, you've been kind enough to arrange a snack for us, which, you know, as a customer on the show, we do snack time where we, you know, break bread uh, and get to know uh, you uh, a little bit better. Um, but you're also the first guest to have it, uh, you know, delivered in real time, uh, you know, via caviar. Um, what uh, what did you organize for us okay. today? Probably placement for caviar. You know, they messed it up. Uh, Ample Hills ice cream. Uh, it's like the best ice cream around. Uh, and you can't really get the stores around here, so caviar. Thank you. What about Ample Hills? Drove you to a to to go through the hassle of going and getting oh, delivered. It's, and it's all really that. good ice cream, and uh, big supporters of them. Uh, I think I mentioned it. Like the guys who are leading our round led their round. Um, the ice, ice cream, cream is a technology company, yeah, or a real estate company. I'm not sure. Both. Okay. Both. Um, I guess when Mark Andreessen said software is eating the world, this is I guess literally <laughs> eating. The company, I don't know. The, There's something there. A bridge too far. Uh, but anyway, their ice cream's awesome. What's, uh, uh, what's your favorite flavor? Of the two here, uh, the chocolate milk and cookies. What's and the other one we got? Ooey gooey butter cake. Oh, it's I was also just really good. just gooey gooey butter. Yeah. It was just like eating a stick. Yeah. Uh, they're know, both artisanal really Artisanal Brooklyn ice cream. Yeah, the, the snacks are also getting increasingly better. Like last week, hey, no pie, offense to the early snacks, but I, the, I, th I think people are listening to the old episodes and they, everybody's trying to beat it. So I, I can only imagine it's, where we're going. Where's our advantage of the one-upmanship of? Yeah. of I, I don't like to pick favorites. Gushers. I don't like to pick favorites, but so far uh, <laughs> you've definitely you're you're winning. Well, Good. listen, I I judge not he who brings me snack. Thank you for that. All right, let's dig it. in. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll dig in and uh, we'll be right back. Looking to buy a home in New York City? Get more with Preview's industry-leading smart buyer rebate. 
seamlessly search listings on Preview's end-to-end buyer platform, purchase your home with the expert advice of a local agent, plus receive up to 2% cash back thanks to Preview's Smart Buyer Commission Rebate. Smart buyers get more with Preview. Go to previewapp.com backslash buyer. That's previewapp.com backslash buyer. So, Jonathan, I wanted to jump back to something you said uh, in the prior segment where you said, I'm not a technology guy, I'm a real estate guy. And that's interesting you said that because so many founders and, and companies talk about themselves as technology companies even when they're, you know, selling home goods online. Um, so you guys are in the technology space when it comes to having raised money from technology investors and being a technology platform. You said that's one of the features that differentiates you. What what drives you to say that you are not a real estate guy, but you are, you are sorry, not a technology guy, you are a real estate guy, and not the other way around? Um, if you asked me to write six lines of code, I couldn't. If you asked me to review a lease and help you find office space, I could, or any other part of the real estate process. It uh, doesn't mean I don't understand the technology. It doesn't mean... First off, to be abundantly clear, we would not have a business were it not for technology, right? So technology for us is an enabler and a differentiator. And I guess if we're going to be like holier than thou, right, a game changer. Um, but that doesn't mean that the business that we use technology for isn't real estate. The The industry, the, the real estate industry in general has been... There's also no tech guys. <laughs> but the, the real estate industry in general has been starting to recently, especially raise a lot of money from kind of tech investors and, uh, and really try to hang their hat on the idea of being in and of the technology industry. So do you, you know, how do you feel about that? And how do you uh, kind of associate or disassociate with that notion? Um, so it's interesting. I mean, I think that there's this popular conflation of tech investing and invest in high growth startups. Historically, most of those were tech, right? Like Google is a tech company where their product is tech. Um, this is going to sound really obnoxious, but what the internet has enabled us to do, us being a lot of, a lot of us just not, not just square foot, is um, scale businesses more quickly than you otherwise could. And that's actually what I think VCs, VCs, I think in, in your kind of definition is the tech investors, what they're looking for, right? But you know, there's all these companies who've raised money to, um, like, innovate on home goods from big name VCs, right? Who raised money from a bunch of tech investors. Is Ample Hills a tech company? I don't believe so. And I love their ice cream, right? Um, there's a lot of examples like that. You could almost make the argument though that like VCs are are just opportunistic investors with the ability to have you know more illiquid investments well, i mean i feel like a, a lot of companies hang but their also head. need a specific return profile so it's not just that it's illiquid it's um with vcs in particular it's high risk high return and in order to justify that you need businesses that have the potential to grow at a certain pace and if you look at let's just look at last year for example 2017 there was a tripling of the investment that went to real estate technology. Mm -hmm. But if you look at it across the industry, it went to only a handful of people. You know, as someone that's gone through multiple investment rounds, how do you feel about the state of funding within real estate tech? Um, 
it's interesting. It's actually pretty barbelly, right? And it's that's actually been annoying for us in the middle of the barbell. So what you have had, uh, and what causes that, right? You have, I mean, you look at the the guys who've raised a bunch of money. Um, you know, Open Door, Compass, Redfin just went public. That was a pretty big offering after raising a whole bunch of money in the private markets through VCs and private equity firms. Uh, you'd mentioned Lemonade earlier, uh, kind of tangentially in, in the space. Uh, once you get, once you need a, a shitload of money, it's out there, right? Because you're betting on businesses that are on this proven trajectory and uh, the calculus for an investor looks a lot different. And there's a lot of, I guess we'd call late stage capital for any business. Um, and because real estate is such a massive industry, uh, the spoils are there for the winners. And there's going to be a whole lot more winners. Um, and what you also have now more than uh three or four or five years ago is a bunch of seed money going into to real estate. So if you want to raise $2 million, it's actually not too hard, right? There's um, a whole bunch of seed-specific real estate groups out there now. Um, one that I guess just around the corner here, New York's Metaprop, uh, which we're involved with, um, not as an investor, but like we're a mentor and all this other good stuff and, and they're great guys. Uh, so if you want to raise $2 million, that capital is not easy. The capital is never easy to raise, but there's a bunch of pools of capital for $2 million for real estate companies. Uh, there's always going to be pools of capital for companies that are uh, either on or believed to be uh, on uh, an exit trajectory like the achieved terminal velocity. Um, so there's always going to be large, large pools of capital for that, right? SoftBank being a great example. I mean, of those companies you just mentioned, I think. Yeah, SoftBank invested in at least three or yeah. three of them. I think all of them except Opendoor of the, the kind of three or four that we just mentioned, right? SoftBank just invested in a dog walking company. I'm not saying it's a good or a bad investment that none of these are, but if you want to raise a shit ton of money, excuse my French, that those pools of capital out there. Where you the only term that applies for several billion dollars for dog walking is shit ton. So yes. That's fair. Oh, literally. And there's even a unicorn now that's a, a doorbell company called Ring, which, yeah. but I guess everybody has a doorbell. I have a Ring. Uh, do you? I do. Is it, it good? It's pretty solid. I mean, but that, you know, raises an interesting point that you made before, which is that there's a conflation that's occurring now of people are conflating technology companies with hyper growth, right? But the real estate industry, I don't know if it's ever been considered a hyper growth industry. It's a lot of family offices opening, buying properties over 30 year horizon and building empires that way, but not necessarily ones that grow at the pace of a Facebook of being hundreds of billions over five years. So is that something when you think about the investment cycles that are happening now, is that changing the industry such that there's going to be a faster pace of growth for real estate startups or are investors looking for growth anywhere and maybe they're investing in real estate in a way that... Uh, you know, won't have that speed. They're not investing in real estate how you mean them to be with like the traditional owner is some family, right? Um, that's in the actual ownership of the asset where you do have the ability for hyper growth is not, it's going to be hard to buy every building on this block. Right? Um, where you can have hyper growth is in providing goods and services to all of the people who own those buildings, right? So how do we lease the space quicker? How do we run the buildings more efficiently? And that can be whether it's, you know, we have this brand new HVAC system. So we have 35 customers on this block that should be buying this thing that tells us exactly how many people are in different parts of the building at different times, and we shouldn't have air conditioning going there or the other way, or something that says, okay, elevators aren't used now, we can turn them off, whatever it is. Um, so that's how you can have hyper growth at the, um, not at the actual bricks and sticks level of it. Do you think that that idea of having so much potential innovation 
at the kind of layers above the core building asset? Does that change the overall industry significantly such that, as you said, more transparency and technology and, you know, does that create more liquidity in the market such that people are able to take on space more readily or use it more effectively? Does it create a whole new dynamic in real estate by nature of that investment coming in? I would like to say yes. In practice, it'll be a while, right? Because it's, um, I don't mean it like from an economic cycle perspective, but there's just cycles. So, you know, the average tenant moves every five years. That means that 20% of the market's moving every year, but it also means it takes a few cycles to have everybody even have thought about going through a new transaction process. Ownership of buildings changes even less frequently. Um, owner, when somebody buys a building, they're probably doing some sort of audit to say, okay, this is how we can improve operations here, maybe. Um, so it's like a decision point for an owner. Okay, well, if we bring in this elect, uh, like HVAC thing, HVAC system, then it can, you know, it'll shave seven dollars off NOI, which then increases the value of the building ten times seven. Uh, so it'll still be. Um, it's not high growth, like in a sense, like Facebook or Google or any of those others. Um, it'll have a different adoption curve. And also because the average owner is I'm some old guy who's owned this building for 70 years and I own seven buildings around here and my dad bought these and that's how I got them and my son now runs them or my daughter runs them. Um, your business has been okay for you and you're not necessarily in a rush to say, okay, how can I do it a little better? And if you don't have that, okay, how can I do it better? Then you don't have the adoption that otherwise would exist. It's probably not the most articulate answer I've given. Turning back to to square foot, though, like obviously we're, we're talking about growth. How have you guys gone about scaling and growing? Obviously, your your home markets, New York. How have you gone about growing in within New York? And then as you look to other cities where you are, where you want to go? Carefully, I don't know, methodically. Uh, so for us, so interesting, we've closed deals in most of the top 20 markets now. We actually started the business in Texas where we grew up. Uh, so we've done probably 150 transactions between Houston, Dallas, and Austin. Um, 300 transactions in New York, so a whole bunch more here. Um, and what drove that? Because like, if you're doing good business in, in Texas, what prompted the move to the New York market? Um, so we're depending on which we were kind of having this conversation earlier. Are we a real estate tech company or a technology company that does real estate? Doesn't matter. Actor slash model, not the other way around. <laughs> right. Uh, in either case, both real estate and technology, there's no better place than New York for it. Right. Um, on the tech side, I love Texas. I love Houston where I grew up. It's a very entrepreneurial city. It's not a very big startup city. There's some people are trying to fix that. We'll see. I also don't think every city needs to have a startup community. That's a whole other soapbox for another day. Um, but New York has, I'm sure there's some people out West who might disagree, but New York has at worst second best talent pool when it comes to technology. Uh, and it's the biggest real estate market in the country probably the world. I haven't looked at that in a couple of days. Uh, and definitely the most decisions um, are made in New York, right? So uh, Blackstone, yes, they have a big portfolio in New York. They have an enormous portfolio outside of New York, but the people who make those decisions sit, I don't know, 30 blocks north of here. 
Now, when you think of, when you look at other commercially focused companies, it's always this, there's instant scale, because if you can land one big customer, they tend to be, you know, the large landlord. You're going from the opposite side with the tenant. Um, But how do you feel about that argument that commercial is easier because there's instant scale with a couple of large players? Good luck selling into them. It's, yeah. it's a lot harder to sell. I mean, and I love all of the landlords we work with. Every landlord is the best landlord in the entire world, uh, at least historically. And hopefully this is changing. Uh, landlords, we're not waking up every day saying, I wonder what piece of technology I can use to make my life or my uh, tenants' lives a little more efficient. So does how does the sales pitch differ when you're going to a big landlord versus you know, other industries? Thankfully, I haven't had to sell to other industries. Uh, to a landlord, look, our pitch has changed a lot, right? So five years ago, uh, hey, you should have your listings online. We didn't really know what any of that stuff meant. Um, we haven't done much outreach to landlords in the last several years. It's been a bunch of tenants coming to us, and then we close a bunch of deals. Now, as I mentioned, as we start launching out our landlord business, I know we're breaking the table. It's we have tens of thousands of people that are on our site every month looking for space. You have space, right? I think you probably want to be in front of them. Not to mention, if we're actually representing you, uh, we are building a bunch of tools and technology and products that make your life a lot better and more efficient. You know, one of the things we've talked about with some other guests over the past couple months has been around how, as the expectations of a tenant uh, increases or changes, as they expect more amenities and luxuries and, and technologies, so that their experience of being in a building is is better and more efficient, et cetera, that is putting pressure on the landlords to provide more amenities, to provide more services. And that seems to be moving the needle for how much adoption there is across the whole ecosystem of, of tenants, landlords, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you foresee that happening on the commercial side as well, where the landlords are being forced to adopt in the same way? Uh, yes, is a short answer. Uh, but I think it'll take a while. Again, getting back to my made-up stat earlier that the average landlord owns four or five buildings. and We can try and figure out if that's actually the right number. Um, it means it takes a whole bunch of landlords to say yes to something in order to get any sort of massive adoption, even to get 40% adoption, right? Because you talk about, let's say, SL Green's the largest property owner in the city, and I think that they're one of, if not the biggest. They have, I think, about, somebody can fact check me on this, I'm sure, about 45 million square feet. Um, that's the biggest landlord that's 45 in a call 500 million square foot market. That's less than 10%. And the second biggest is not close to 45. It's maybe 30, 30. I mean, Vernada, I think, has 30 million square feet. There might be somebody in between those two. And then it goes pretty far down. I don't know who owns 137 West 25th, but it's no name that you know of or I know of. Sorry. Um, and looking to other areas of commercial outside of square foot, what are some of the other exciting you know companies that you've come across that like, wow, that's – they're gonna they're gonna be successful with that. What's what intrigues you? Um, it's a good question. I think that there are now individual companies going after a lot of different parts of the value chain, um, and we're now starting to get to the point where uh, landlords are willing to have conversations about how can I make my building better, uh, how can I make uh, everything better about this process. Um, so whether that's 
people around the insurance space we'd mentioned a couple earlier, or uh, there's a bunch of interesting things. I'm not going to know the names of the companies um, around like the bill and efficiency uh, space. I think that stuff is really interesting. Anything that can, if I'm a landlord, if I own a building, I want to have my building fully leased. Uh, and I want to do that efficiently. And then I want my billing to run efficiently, right? Because it's just a math equation. The um, more people I have paying rent and the less vacancy I have for shorter periods of time, it all increases my top line. And then if I can run an efficient building, that increases my bottom line. So anything that should help me um, increase the top line and decrease the expenses, I should be a welcome advocate for you know the energy efficiency. We've heard uh, we've heard a couple of people talk about that. Um, that's uh, that's pretty interesting. And uh, you know, when we come back, we're gonna get uh, a little bit deeper into your background and uh, how you got to where you are today. Uh, we'll be right back. The superior audio quality on Mouth Media Network is powered by Sennheiser. And as a listener, you can receive a 25% discount on virtually any headphone, microphone, and other high-quality audio product available to purchase directly on the Sennheiser website. Just visit Sennheiser.com and enter the code MOUTHMEDIASEN, that's MOUTHMEDIA, S-E-N-N, at checkout. Keep up with the show on Instagram and Facebook at Real Estate Biz Show and with hashtag MouthMedia. Plus, check out all of the MouthMedia Network shows at MouthMediaNetwork.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. So we're going to get into a, a little bit more of the personal questions with you, which are you know, more off the beaten path, uh, not necessarily about real estate. Or Should I lie down time. on the couch? This is like a <laughs> therapy session. <laughs> Tell us about your parents. They're um, great. But uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to let Scott kick it off. Uh, well, I've been wondering about one thing in particular, which is you mentioned that you're from Houston, you're from Texas, and yet you have the pretty neutral New York accent, lack of a drawl. Where, where it happened? So... Both my parents are from New York. Uh, I grew up in Houston. Uh, Houston's a big metropolitan city. Most The average person in Houston doesn't have an accent. What? Uh, have you been to Houston? I've been to Houston. But I only know people who are transplants to Houston. Yeah, and that's how most, I don't know about most, a lot of people, I mean, probably most, right? Um, so yeah, I didn't grow up in a family of, like, I'm not a fourth generation, like, ranch hand. Um, so I didn't grow up. And, and Houston's a big metropolitan area. Uh, it's funny. So my mom grew up in, was born on the Lower East Side in a tenement. And then uh, I was actually born in California. So she lived there too, obviously. Uh, and then she and my dad moved to Texas when I was like two. Uh, and for the most of her career, she worked for what wound up being J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, started, when she started there, it was, doesn't matter, but spent a lot of her career interfacing with people in New York while she was based in Texas. Uh, and everybody in, in New York thought she had a Texas accent. And everybody in Texas thought she sounded like a New Yorker. And the answer is she sounds just like me, except she says y'all a lot less and everything in a slightly higher pitch. Um, I've heard no y'alls yet from this conversation. I haven't had to talk about the, you. I'm waiting for it now. Yeah. We're going to be listening, yeah. so everyone pay attention. Yeah. So looking back to the early Did days. Did y'all like the ice cream? Oh, there we go. <laughs> Good. Now that the, the ice cream was uh, was delicious, uh, we'll have to... 
to look into eat that, more of it. eat more of that and and look into it um but looking back to the early days of when you started square foot um what was that first office like describe it for my us. parents attic so this was we started started with a couple guys uh from home and the summer between my two years of business school which i did in new york that's what brought me to new york originally i guess seven years ago um the summer between my first and second year this was my internship in quotes the listeners can't see me doing quotes from he's my doing internship. air quotes um, so yeah it was we were, i was home for the summer and we were trying to figure this out so that's where we start so you went the kind of MBA business school track, but then decided to go and start something instead of going down the probably more well-worn path of doing an internship between years of, of an MBA program, you decided to start something. Yeah. What, we all what, make mistakes. <laughs> what made you decide to, to go to business school in the first place or the opposite? What made you decide that, you know, when you're going down business school path, you're not going to go down the traditional track of going to a big company afterwards? Uh, business school, kind of always thought I was going to go to business school. Um, after college, I'd consulting for a couple of years, then was doing commercial real estate for a few years, and I've always thought I was going to go back to school. Um, my brother is an attorney. Both my parents have graduate degrees. Um, it would have been awkward at the Thanksgiving table if I was the one without one, I guess. Uh, and I'd always been interested in it. So I kind of did it. I guess that was the not preordained, but that was just kind of part of the plan. Uh, and then as far as not starting a traditional role afterwards, I don't know. I mean, when I wrote my business school essay, it was about getting into real estate development because I thought that was like the entrepreneurial path in real estate. Um, as I mentioned, grew up in Houston and I wrote about this uh, mythical corner of downtown Houston that I would redevelop and um, this presented itself before then. And it's been a lot of fun. I'm wondering if there's something there because I've been to Houston a few times and it's it's striking if you haven't been there before by how the, I guess, lack of zoning regulations make for a really odd assortment of times of of large buildings to small commercial next to residential do you think growing up there and you didn't grow up in a real estate family did that contribute to your desire to you know create that mythical corner of houston uh, it's a really astute question because not everybody knows that houston doesn't have zoning um i don't think that played into it though <laughs> Thesis destroyed. Yeah. But what do you think it is that made but you say you wanted first, to go so to? Well, I appreciate that. That's the. Uh, I, I clearly didn't uh, research the it's zoning actually, of. Houston. No, if you go to Houston at all, if you spend any amount of time there, it's very stark. It's like you can see mansions next to shanties. You can see office buildings next to, to to houses. It's actually quite interesting to look around. And you know, I grew up in Long Island. I spent a lot of my life in New York City. It's it's very much. You know, the neighborhoods have a similar look and feel, and I think most places have that, but Houston doesn't. Houston has this, by nature of lacking of zoning regulation, this distinct real estate vibe. I think the most interesting outgrowth of that, which I haven't really thought about before this minute, uh, is there's like three or four big urban cores. So you have downtown, you have the medical center, uh, which I think has as much office space as most of the top, bottom of the top 20 markets by itself. You have the Galleria area, which again has almost as much. Uh, and then you have in the last kind of decade, you have the energy quarter, which has been built up. Um, so you wind up being able to have several nodes instead of just like, okay, here's the downtown and that's it. So you were applying to business school. You write this essay on this mythical corner of Houston that you want to redevelop. You've been in New York several years now. What area within New York do you think is still 
an opportunity to develop? Uh, there's a lot of them. So, I mean, I think the south part of the Bronx is interesting. I think I mean, Brooklyn was interesting. It, probably less so now because it, once it, once I'm talking about it, I'm not a developer, so I don't have to make long-term bets. So also don't listen to anything I say. I make money on all the trans. We, we hopefully make money on transact. We go over the transactions. So the answer is everywhere needs to be developed so yeah. that I can sell property there. Uh, I think, yeah, I think, yes, the South Bronx. I think Lower East Side still has a bunch of work to be done. Uh, you know, the guys at Taconic and LM are doing Essex Street, uh, which is aside from whatever this development over here, Hudson Yards is, is the biggest development um, on the island right now. Yeah, I mean, I think I was just reading the other day about like New Rochelle has done a really good job of building up transit accessible uh, and multifamily stuff, which you've seen a lot of other markets. We haven't really seen much of in New York historically, but New Rochelle is, I don't know, like 30 minutes from downtown. We have guys in our office who commute longer than that from Brooklyn. That's interesting because in New Rochelle, you have a lot more land than in Brooklyn. Well, speaking of, of kind of commercial property and suburbs like New Rochelle, uh, how do you f- see or are you seeing any habits of companies that normally be in a downtown city center that are starting to look at alternative, you know, locations uh, to develop their office space in because, you know, proximity is perhaps not as much of an issue anymore? So, I mean, Industry City, I think, has been an interesting example of that over in, uh, in Queens, uh, Sunset Park, Brooklyn. Um, Long Island City in Queens uh, has done an interesting job of that as well. Uh, you know, companies will go where the talent is and where the talent can easily get to. So Sunset Park, for instance, is uh, where in industry in, in industry city is um, a lot of the rank and file like to work there because it's close to where they live in Brooklyn. But the decision makers, if somebody lives in. Uh, Westchester, that's not the easiest commute. I mean, historically, right, that's why Midtown was Midtown, because everybody came in on the trains from Westchester and on the trains from Long Island. And then decision maker picks the office space. Uh, Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us uh, today. We would like to give all of our guests the opportunity to you know leave us with a final thought uh, and Tell us and tell the listeners how people can connect with you and how people can connect with uh, the Square Foot. Jonathan at Square Foot. Uh, yeah, feel free to reach out. Uh, love to talk to anybody. I'm approachable. Work hard and be nice to people. Don't be an asshole. I don't think enough people uh, recognize the benefit of being nice. And then you just need to work hard to do anything in life. Great. And thanks, uh, thanks again for joining us. And thanks to everyone uh, for listening today. And for Scott. Bye, everyone. And Tom, this is Real Estate Is Your Business. You've been listening to Real Estate Is Your Business. To suggest guests or content for this show or to become a sponsor, email us at realestatebizshow at mouthmedianetwork.com. Keep up with the show on social media at Real Estate Biz Show. That's Real Estate B-I-Z Show. Episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, along with our website, realestateisyourbusiness.com. Produced by Mouth Media Network and brought to you by Preview. Copyright 2018. All rights reserved. No portion of the episode may be distributed or published without the express written permission of the producers. Thanks for listening.
This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.